Hello and welcome to the Hockey Herds podcast for Friday, April 18th, 2014. I'm Ryan Wilson. I'm Cameron Wolf. And today we are going to be discussing all of the great action that's happened in days one and two of the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs. The best playoffs in any sport and the hardest trophy to win in all of sport, the Stanley Cup. So, Walshie, how have you enjoyed the playoffs so far? It's been fantastic. I've enjoyed all the games. The only two that you consider sort of duds, in a sense, would have been the Philly Rangers game and the San Jose LA game. And LA made it very interesting in the third period. So um, <clears throat> they've all been really, really good fun to watch. Um, obviously, having has it been two overtime games so far? Um, you can never be upset with free hockey, as you like to put it. So three. Um, it's it's been good. It's tough to watch. Montreal to Tampa, Colorado, Minnesota, and uh, St. Louis, Chicago. So three, three pretty good overtime games. And even the Flyers Rangers, it was a one goal or a tie game very late. So, from obviously, I only watched the bits and pieces of it because you games while you can when there are ads and and intermissions and stuff like that. It just it just felt like I felt like New York had that game in hand the whole way through the only thing that was sort of keeping them in the game was was Ray Emery and, and you sort of get um, if they can get Steve Mason back and have Mason play to the level he has this year which is at a higher level than, than Ray Emery then there is still a chance in that series I mean it, it only takes a couple of fluky bounces and you know there's a couple of goalposts there on on, on the flyers and it's a 3-2 game rather than a a 3-1 game and the whole complex changes. So that's why, like you said, it's the hardest tournament to win. A couple of bounces here and there and you're toast. And the thing with goaltending is any goalie can get hot and have that small sample size. Like Ray Emery could have stolen that game last night. But how long can you Correct. expect that's exactly right. a goalie to do that? And that's not realistic. And I think if the Rangers continue to pour it on much like they did last night, I believe I predicted Rangers in five or six, and I, I still feel very strongly about that. Last night did nothing to sway me. I, and from that. yeah, no, that's right. I, I you, you won't hear me any any of that. I look. I think Ray Emery's skill set is extremely good. It's just his brain. He just has brain snaps, and then it all falls apart for him. I, I thought um, I, I thought he was great in Ottawa, um, and then obviously it all fell apart there. I think he could get that small sample size and win a series on his own. He quite literally could do that. Um, whether or not it's this particular series with that back six that the Philly have got in front of him, I don't know. But he definitely proved in game one that he's capable of doing it. Yeah, and, and when I say he can win a series, he's got to have help not win a series in the sense of, you know, it's all on him to do because I don't think that's realistic. No, but no. the Flyers are going to have to come a little bit stronger than they did. And, and they were... They got a little bit undisciplined. I know that that young rookie kid that got the double minor for a high stick, that wasn't an egregious penalty. I don't think, clearly it wasn't intentional, but it was still four minutes. The Rangers still poured in two power play goals, and that was the game. And those are that's the fine line in the playoffs. You can't make those kind of mistakes. Yeah. You're okay. You're okay with him being physical, but you've got to be in control. So it wasn't like he, you're right. It wasn't deliberate. It wasn't intentional. He just got out of control with his hit lost his balance, and then the stick just went crack. So it's unfortunate, but it's, it's a lesson learned. Um, hopefully he'll, he'll still stay physical, but just be a little bit more in control. So 
that's that's going to be a hard-fought series. I don't know how long it'll go, but but that should be a, a pretty good one. Um, another one of the hard-fought series, and I do think could go very long, Blues and Blackhawks. And that triple overtime last night was terrific for anybody that was uh, fortunate enough that... to stay up later. In your case, be up early. Yeah, well, that's all right. I mean, it, what, it started at 8 and, and finished at, at 1 o'clock my time or 1.30 my time in the afternoon, so it wasn't exactly difficult. This is the thing. Overtime in, in Australia is great when you're, on the, when you're on the West Coast because you just you can watch it. It's not a problem. Um, Whereas you guys are like, on a Thursday, like anything from a Monday night to a, a Thursday night can be a bit of an issue. Yeah, if we make it happen, though, it's worth it. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, the Blues. Um, that series, I, that series can quite literally have seven overtime games. You know, Crawford was awesome. Miller was great after looking like he was going to get burned. Um, it was, it was really, really good hockey to watch. Ryan Miller got off to what I think a lot of people on Twitter and just message boards. He got off to a rough start in Game One and. Statistically, I, I do believe that's absolutely correct, but I don't think he played as bad as people think. Um, I think a lot of attention was placed on the Patrick Kane breakaway goal where it looked like he didn't move or, or do anything or even make an attempt on the save. But I'm pretty confident that he was waiting out Patrick Kane for one of his famous slow dekes, knowing how much time he had. That was a clear-cut breakaway. And Ryan Miller oh, yeah, he was going. bet on Deke, and he was wrong. So aesthetically, it looked awful. But I don't think it was it as bad. It looked really yeah. funny. I don't think it was as bad as it looked. I just think he guessed wrong. And when you're going up against probably one of the most skilled Deekers in all of hockey, you know, sometimes you got to hedge your bets and sometimes you're wrong. That time he was wrong, and he looked bad. But that just shows the... Um, brain smarts, uh, like the, the mental capacity of Kane to just get there and go well he's going to expect this and just rip it past him it was it was awesome, like you look at it from a forwards perspective to just blow it by such an elite goalie like that, it's just like okay, no worries, you just make him look like an idiot not a problem, it was great yeah, his release was fantastic, that was a little buffalo on buffalo crime Patrick Kane the, <laughs> Patrick Kane, the buffalo native versus uh, Rainbow Saber, great. So that was pretty good. Miller did finish strong, 35 saves in a row to pick up the triple OT win, including a breakaway. I believe it was in overtime. I keep the period straight, but he stopped Patrick Sharp. I think it was. Two, I think he had Sharp on two in in, one, in each in the first and the second overtime. Yeah, he made huge saves. And yeah, yeah, yeah. and then that's the thing. It, you can't. I think in the playoffs, you can't look at the numbers. I think you need to look at timing of the saves and 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 the difficulty of the saves so obviously you get there you look at those any save in overtime as far as i'm concerned is a key save um but you get there and look at the way that patrick sharp breakaway came about they were just really bad mental breakdowns by say the back six but it was only the back five i think in that second period because bo meester was out um and he managed to bail him out. And that's all you can ask for from your goalie um, is to just bail out, you know, egregious mistakes. And and then you've got a pretty good chance of winning, which in the end, St. Louis managed to do with a very nice fortune. Sometimes you, the goalie can bail out those mistakes, but 
that's not something that you can expect any goalie, no matter who they are, how great they are, to consistently do, especially against a team like Chicago with Kane and Sharp being the guys coming on a breakaway. The next game it could be Taves or Hosa. It's you just. I think the Blues are really going to have to worry about that stretch pass because that was very successful on multiple yep. occasions. And it was. How do you, how do you defend against that? Uh, well, you can send four checkers up deep so that or hard on the guy so that they don't have time to set and make that play. But uh, gap control from the defense end. Yeah. You just have to be aware of your surroundings. You can't get a, let a guy get behind you. You don't have to be right on him, but you need to understand the lane that the the guy was asked to to make that pass, and you have to have the ability to shut that lane off. And I think it was just a case of the Blues defenseman falling asleep at the wheel. Yeah, and that's going to happen. But can't, <clears throat> can't in playoffs. Regular season, yeah, so be it. But It'll happen. They get People get tired. They're going to make those errors. It's just the – it's why – playoff hockey is is great you get to the end of 82 games and, and the intensity ramps up again people get tired quicker it's when you get errors and hockey is, is what makes it fun yeah, hockey. you're absolutely correct well there was a the other powerhouse series in the western conference uh sharks and kings and this game did not go the way i thought it was going to go i i did not expect either of these teams to ever pound out five goals um no, not with the not with quick in net and and not with the way LA struggled to score at times. I wasn't expecting an, uh, what is it a nine goal game in the end? Yes, I wasn't expecting the Kings to put a five spot on San Jose or or how it happened. I, that this series always struck me as one that would be close all three periods or overtime each and every game, yep. and that was a little uh, nice little playoff surprise. Um, the Sharks dominated. Their fend close possession was like 67.7%. That's that's against the best possession team in the league in the LA Kings. That's fantastic by the Sharks. Um, apparently, <clears throat> the Sharks only scored 10 goals in this playoff series last year. They've scored five in one game. So let's hope for the Sharks fans' sake they haven't burnt all of their goals in one game. Sharks are deep. They're great this year. Uh, the fact they can scratch mm. they scratch Marty Havlett and Tyler Kennedy. That's when you know you're deep. Rafi Torres looks like he's going to be a, a bit of an X-factor as well. Like just, It's all the little things that he brings. And tough edge that you know often San Jose have been accused of not having. Yeah, and the thing with Rafi Torres is he's kind of um, has that similar background to Matt Cook that people like to focus on. And rightfully mm. so, but, but you tend to forget he's actually a pretty good hockey player too and, and can be an asset to his team, much like Matt Cook was to Pittsburgh for, for a long time there. Um, if they can avoid those egregious physical assaults on players, they can and do help their team. And you're right, I think Rafi Torres certainly has enough skill and tenacity and that's a good combination for the Stanley Cup playoffs mm. Hurdle Turtle looks alright now that he's back yeah he scored if I'm correct I think so That that's that's it's one of those series where it could be really really close or this this game one could just be a precursor to the fact that San Jose are, are just going to blow them out of the water because I don't think LA have the 
the skill sets to ramp up that many goals. Like you could see Antti Niemi winning this series with the goals against average of around about 2.9. It could quite easily happen because San Jose can just score that much. Um, It's not like Jonathan Quick played badly. It's just that San Jose were that much better than LA. I struggle to see LA playing that poorly over that time, but San Jose were that good. In game one, they were that good. And the nice thing about the playoffs, at least for the very good teams that have aspirations of winning it all, they have very short memories. So they will treat it as one Mm, isolated event. They'll forget about it. They know they can't change any of it. They know what they have to do moving forward. And I'm not saying that they will be able to execute exactly what they want in game two. But I know that their mindset, especially a lot of those former cup champs facing adversity as you go through a cup championship season, Mm. Forget it. We know what we have to do. We're going to focus on game two, and we're going to get after it. On the flip side, San Jose is probably like thinking the same thing. Okay, forget it. That was great. We're up one nothing. Let's get after it game two. And that's why when you have teams of this caliber, it's just a treat to watch. Do you sit there with either side and take into account what happened in the third period? Do San Jose have to sit there and really break down that third period and look at what no. happened? And do I? I don't think so. I've been on teams on both ends of that equation, and when it's five, it's it's human nature. You don't feel that outside force pressuring you to get every small detail right. It's more of a loose game. I think people's guard on the winning team gets down a little bit. Um, it's mm-hmm. why we have the fend close possession stat in the first place. That's why. Most of the possession stats are only taken when it's a tie game or a one-goal game because you have those score effects when it's a blowout where the losing team starts throwing a ton of shots on that because the winning team's like, eh, whatever. (laughs) They don't do it on purpose, but subconsciously it's just something that happens. You you let your foot off the gas because you're you're so content. Five-nothing, who in their right mind thinks anybody's coming back from that? Yeah, no, no, no it, it, it makes sense. So it's just, it's just one of those things where you, you sit there and mind games can start to take effect on a team. I suppose if it was further in the series and it had been a, a, a constant um, process that had happened, then it would be a bit different. But yeah, it's, I'm just curious. I'm sure Todd McClellan's not thrilled about it, but at the same time, as a neutral bystander, you can you can understand how that could happen. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, that's the three series in the West. Ah, we got one more. Avs Wild. What is the, oh, the Avalanche and Wild. <laughs> the other overtime game from last night. Um, <clears throat> that one was probably on the back burner to a lot of people because of the Chicago-St. Louis. I know I found myself watching more of the Chicago-St. Louis game. When I'd start tuning in towards the end of Avs Wild, it, it, was, uh, it was a pretty good game. That, that Colorado team believes this year. They just, they believe in themselves. It, it feels like, you know, everyone's kind of written them off as the, the second best option in regard. If they win that series, the, the team out of the, San, uh, out of the St. Louis and Chicago series is just going to walk all over them. I um, think they will, but, but that's okay. The, 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 yeah, the players certainly don't, you can tell that they just believe. 
whatever Patrick Wire has done to the mental aspect of that team has worked wonders for Absolutely. Um, they're getting by further along than I think maybe their current talent should let them. Not that they don't have really great young forwards. I'm not much for their defense core, and I do think once they get some puck-moving defensemen on that team, they'll be very a, a scary team moving forward, especially if Varlamov, if he can play in front, a quality goal at defend, they start getting some quality pieces. Look out. Um, Nate McKinnon, one of those awesome young forwards, he is the first 18-year-old to get three assists off games since Trevor Linden did it. And uh, Trevor Linden is no spring chicken, so that was a little a little while ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah. Well, he's now running a team, so it gives you an idea of uh, how long ago it was. Now, over the course of the season, one of the storylines for the Avalanche was whether or not they would trade Paul Stasny, and they didn't. And good thing they didn't, because he was the guy that got the tying goal with in the third period with not a lot of time left. And he's also the one with overtime goal. So, clutch, clutch moments for Paul Stasny. We uh we didn't see Mad Max Talbot do anything clutch. No, he 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 got in there though. You could tell he's he's got his playoff gear going on. He he was kicking. Some people amazing how some people just flick that switch and can just. It's now, just... do you feel a fan that you're being cheated during the regular season by this player, or do you just accept no. that? Okay, I'll take it in the playoffs when we get there. It's, I don't. I don't think it's. It's not a deliberately conscious effort not to bring it in the regular season. It just seems to be that that person can pick it up in the postseason. It's just a. It's like you said. It's the reverse of it's the reverse of the San Jose LA game. They just seem to be able to to work out that this is important time to play and, and pick it up a notch, as opposed to the games are wash. We'll turn it down a notch. It just happens for some people. Some people choke the other way and can't deal with the extra pressure. It is valid. I, I do think pressure definitely affects certain players in a different way. I think most players do a pretty nice job of it, but some just for whatever reason, love it, thrive in it, and Max Superstar Talbot's yeah. certainly uh, <laughs> certainly one of those guys. So, um, and then we have. Um, have you actually seen the uh, puck get past the uh, red line in this Detroit Red Wings Boston Bruins game? It's barely got up to Tuka Rask at all. Um, I got it on in the background here, and. Um, well, there's a reason the Bruins are the clear-cut favorite in the East. It's they play all 200 yeah. feet and they do it great. And they're normally you talk about gap control with your defensemen, but the gap control by the forwards on on their back checks force the puck carriers into the Bruins defenders, which forces a chip and chase. And that gargantuan Chara usually uses his telephone pole reach collects yeah. the puck. And the Bruins forwards are so disciplined in their lanes, <laughs> it goes back the other way, just like that. There's no controlled zone entries against the Bruins. Yep. And if you can't get those controlled yeah. entries against Boston, then you're, you're pretty much screwed. Yeah. Um, um, this could be a five-game series. 
And the only reason I say five is because it's going to be a lucky bounce that does Tuka Raskin. And that didn't happen for Pittsburgh. So See, I think the Detroit Red Wings, it may not happen. As scary as it is, might have a better shot at knocking off the Bruins than most because I do think they value all those qualities I just talked about. They do value, um, they're not a chip and chase team. They, they do value carrying the puck over the blue line with full possession. Um, they have the absolute right mindset to do it. Mike Babcock preaches absolutely the right way to beat a team like Boston. It's just going to be a matter of can Tatar and Nyquist, you know, they're younger guys or at least not a ton of NHL experience. Can they find a way yeah. against such a machine like Boston? And if they can buy time until Zetterberg gets back, that'll be a um, huge, huge boost for them. That's the one. The one bonus of that series starting what everyone would consider, you know, a day late or two days late, is that it just allows Zetterberg that extra time to get back into the series. And, and Datsuk is playing, but he's hurt too, so any extra time is going to help him as well. Yeah, it'll pretty much boil down to Jimmy Howard. How can he? Can he stand the just waves of the Boston Bruins attack? And can he hold up? Because you know Rask will on the other end, so he's going to have to match that, mm. and they'll have to get a little bit lucky. If Howard can see that going to be fine, so if he faces 40 shots and he sees 40 shots, I, I think he'll be able to stop them. So Detroit's ability to, to keep the shooting lanes visible for, for Howard's going to be really, really important. No, it'll be, it'll be a fun series to track, and I'm sure the rest of the Eastern Conference is rooting for Detroit to make it at least a longer series. Um, yes, I can uh, I can sympathize with that. Especially uh, the Tampa-Montreal series that uh, is going to have to face most likely the Bruins. Can Lindback make that series close? Um... Yeah, well, like we said before, any goal, any goalie can get hot, and in short, and the small sample sizes do a pretty okay job. I think it's going to be more so on Tampa Bay to get their act together. They're they're not a terrible possession team. Montreal has been a lower end possession team most of the year, and they crushed Tampa in that department in Game One, and uh, that hurt because Tampa got some great offense from from Stamkos and some of the other guys. They didn't have that many shots, but they they struck with the few chances they got, which was kind of the opposite that of how I thought it was going to go. I thought Montreal was going to be that end-to-end rush by Stamkos, and then obviously the pretty goal. That were great goals. Yeah, Stamkos, it's amazing. He, He did the curl right before he let that shot go, and you could see the puck on its side. And right as soon as he released it, it went flat on the ground and and, and became a frisbee, perfect at just the right moment. Um, when you're good, you're good, I suppose. <laughs> there are things that aren't teachable, are they? You just know how to do it. And Montreal, in overtime, they have a guy much like we were talking about before with Talbot, kind of how he turns it up. Danny Briere in the playoffs is an animal, and he had that beautiful assist for the game-winning goal. 
he's uh, he's so frustrating to watch when he's playing against your team because he's just good. Yeah, he is. I, I don't. I'm not a particularly big fan of Briere, but you've you know, stick tap to what he can do in the playoffs. He just brings it every year, and you sort of sit there and, and you he looks like he's not going to be any good. He's injured. He, he's you know classified as soft at times, and you get there and go, where do you want to classify him? The boy brings it when he needs to. Well, if Soft's worth 111 playoff points in 109 games, sign me up for Soft. Take it. <laughs> exactly right. That guy kills people in the playoffs, left and right. Doesn't matter what team he's playing on. He was a stud for Buffalo. He was a stud. For, I think Danny Breer had more playoff goals as a flyer during his tenure with the Flyers than the Sabres had playoff goals as a team. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he's that good, and, you know, we get an up-close and personal look at him uh, following the Penguins as close as we do, and he crushes he crushed yeah. them as well. So, Well, I suppose that's a perfect segue into Penguins Blue Jackets. What did you think? What did you think? Oh. Uh, okay, what did I think? Um, I think it was a very tight Pittsburgh team um, that eventually down a little bit and, and started to play um, the way you would expect a, a second seed in the, in, in the entire conference to, to play. Um, and it was good to see Biles punish players that made mistakes with less ice time. That's probably the big one for me. Um, is that uh, acknowledgement that you, you can't keep throwing players out on the ice if they keep screwing up. I'm going to echo that 100%. I thought that you saw maybe the playoff expectations of the Penguins. You, you could see that pressure early on. Columbus got off to that terrific, got up 3-1. I think it was a, a blown opportunity by the Blue Jackets to lose that 3-1 to one lead and ultimately lose the game because I don't think you're going to see the pen for the rest of the series. I think, no, I, I agree. And, and to your point about, I think you were specifically gearing your point a guy like Chris Letang. In the past, Bilesma kind of had a long leash with, with a lot of his players, at least the stars, and to see him bench... Latang first for from the power play he had that turnover that led yes. to the shorthanded goal and then he had two two penalties and he benched his even strength ice time um, I believe Latang played a third period low for all the Penguins like three minutes and change so yeah and that's that's brilliant that's exactly what you you, you want to see. I know it's his fourth game back, and, and you can sort of make excuses for certain areas and stuff like that, but you, you still can't make excuses for stupid penalties. And, and, you know, critical errors, yeah, it might be his third game back, but a critical error is still a critical error. You can't, you can't just let that slide. You know, isolated turnover, yeah, you understand that at times, even though it was a terrible power play turnover that led to a shorthanded goal. But the, the penalty thing is a selfish thing. And especially when there's some highlights out there of Brandon Dubinsky taking some liberties on Crosby last game. There was the, the slew foot, a, a hit from behind, uh, spirit of the balls, 
and then there was a old-fashioned just scrum in front of the net. And Crosby's demeanor was, all right, whatever, I'm not engaging with this junk this year. He set the tone for the rest of the team. We're not doing the 2012 Flyer Series nonsense. And for Latang to do that, that slashing penalty just because the guy finished his hit on him was, was a selfish play, and I believe Latang said that himself today, that he feels that it was selfish of him to his teammates that he, that he took that penalty. So the, between the benching and him realizing it, I think that's a good sign for the Penguins moving forward. Yes, but realizing it out of the game and then when he's back in the heat of the moment, he needs to make sure he reacts the right way. So game two will be interesting. You, you'll know that the Jackets will try and get in on him and, and do exactly the same thing and, and hope that he the, the same mental error comes out of him. So um, it, it'll be interesting to see whether that, that uh, mental growth, the, the experience and the maturity that everyone's asking for Latang to show comes to the forefront. It'll be one of those things where if this Penguins team's going to go anywhere, they need him on the ice playing well. And I think the other thing that Bilesma did well was he, he did make some in-game adjustments to the forward lines. He noticed his third line was getting beat up a little bit with Tanner Glass out there. So he took Bo Bennett, who had a great game, one goal, one assist, and that huge hit on Ryan Murray, put him on the third line, the original fourth liner, Brian Gibbons, also having a very strong game, popped him on the first line, and it gave them three playable lines, and I thought it, it worked out well for that, at least for game one. And I don't... I, I'm happy for this series to stay that way, too. I understand why people want to keep Bennett, and you, you would rather keep Bennett on the first line. I understand the, the largest ceiling you can have with those three players playing together rather than, than Gibbons there, but... I just like the fact that Bennett Bennett seems to give Sutter confidence in regards to if Sutter goes to do something, he's got someone there that can finish off what he does. I think a lot of Sutter's struggles have come from the fact that he, he, he thinks, oh, if I go and do this and then I give it to Glass or, or, or I give it to someone else and they flub it, I'm going to be out of position and my job is fundamentally a third-line a third line role trying to stop the other team from scoring. It's going to create a turnover and go the other way. That's the most confident I've seen Sutter look. He still can't cycle the puck and all those sorts of problems, but that's the most confident I've seen him look when Bennett was on the ice. That Stempniak-Bennett-Sutter line was a really nice change to send that third line out there and not have them just be concerned with keeping the puck out of their own defensive third and just trying to get it into that, into that offensive third. So I would love to see them stick with the lines that they've got uh, um, and keep Adams and, and Glass down on that fourth line, wow. to be honest. But Vitaly provides some form of speed, but one player with speed doesn't carry the other two with him. Well, the, the thing with Bo on that third line is he's the guy that had that chip pass, that beautiful chip pass that led to the Sutter away. He didn't, he, he mm. didn't score on it, but you know, it was also Bennett's playing the neutral zone that, that sprung Sutter for the game-winning goal. So they're doing... He, shoot, he should only shoot from just inside that right-side dot because he scored so many goals from that spot. Or if he gets in close that, enough, um, he can backhand Deke. That's true. Because he's pretty good at that one, too. But obviously the moves worked. 
There's no doubt about it. The Penguins won the game, and Sutter scoring on a Bo Bennett pass, obviously it worked. I'm not against this setup, but I would kind of want to see Gibbons on that third line left wing first before taking Bo from Sid, because if that if Gibbons could work on the third line and you can keep Bo up top with his high ceiling up there, I think it's win-win yep, at that Mike point. Sits. Now, if you find that Gibbons, it's not quite working that way, yeah, then, then go to their current setup right now. I think they skipped a step. But it worked, so it's tough for me to criticize. No, and we're okay with that. One of the major complaints last year was, was lack of adjustment, lack of adjustment. Adjustments occurred and they worked, so you're not really going to find us criticising the adjustments. You know, At least they were made. Even if it didn't work, you can at least say they made the adjustments, which is good. Yeah, that's probably the biggest criticism I read online with Dan Bilesma is the lack of in-game adjustments, and he made a ton of them in game one, taking Latang off the power play, putting Niskanen on, that led to two power play goals, uh, and what we've just been talking about the last few minutes. So Dan Bilesma deserves full marks for his game one coaching, for sure. Do you... Do you put Latang and Ma, so Orpik and Skideri play together, and you try and give them sheltered minutes? No. Keep it as I is. I think Orpik Martin will be fine. It's Latang Skideri that may have their ups and downs, but if that's the case, they can become the bottom pairing, and Niskanen and Mata can fill in that second. Because Orpik worries me. Buddies with Martin, so it's okay. Okay, and the other thing that really frustrates me has been the change in the penalty kill. Ever since they've come back from the Olympic break, they have been good. allowed the fifth forward, so whoever's sitting in front of Fleury, to sit there. They will stand next to the person to the outside of the play. They will intentionally roll off so that they're not engaged in, in, with that player. And that's been the biggest change in, in regards to them not being able to, to get for, for them having so many goals scored on them. Frustrating watch it. You can actually see it happen. You can see them peeling off to go, to, the, to go towards the putt carrier who's behind the net and that guy in, in tight, it's just got free reign because the, the defender on the, on the far side of the box can't get a crossing time and, and you've got guys like Adams out there who don't have leg speed, can't drop down quick enough and deep enough to cover the guy that's in front of the net or the backdoor pass. You just watch it and you go, go back to whatever the hell you were doing before the Olympic. It worked. Well, the numbers aren't lying for you. They were 7.5% on the penalty kill before the Olympics, and they are only 802 since. So there has been a significant drop-off. Even though they are ranked fifth overall in the NHL in penalty kill this year, they were first, they dropped the fifth, and they're still showing signs of dropping. So penalty kill is a real concern for the Penguins so far moving forward in these playoffs. But I just I just find it, I find it bizarre. Like I think Seth Robor wrote on Twitter that, you know, the lack of having Dupree out there has really affected the 
really affected the penalty kill, but he's been out for most of the year. It didn't affect them before the Olympic break. You, you watch the, the way the penalty kill was structured before the break and then post the Olympic break. They've made some systematic changes that have created holes for the opposition to, to pick apart, and it, it shows. Like, I know you can get there and say Fleury's safe percentage has dropped, you know, and it's come back to the norms where you would expect it to be. But one of the reasons for that is to go east-west so much more and through traffic that's not moving. And, and that's tough on any goal. You know, I don't care who you are. If you're having to try and look through a screen that, that's not having to shift and they can just slide across in your vision the entire time with, with no consequence, it makes it tough. Yeah, I, I don't argue any of that. I agree 100%. They, they have to figure figure out kind of what they were doing, what they're doing now, what and if anything changed and what they can do moving forward to fix that change because clearly the other teams are on to something and they're scoring at a much higher rate. But you did mention Clary's uh, save percentage shorthanded, but what do you think about your guy, Flurry? In game one, um, I thought he was okay, and that's all he needs to be. <laughs> he doesn't need to be. He doesn't need to be brilliant. This team will score goals. So I mean, I'm sure he'd like to, to have that that short-handed goal back. But it was a flubbed shot. He was in the right position. He chipped over his right shoulder. He should have had it without well, a doubt. Once again, a breakaway. If that shot comes off, yeah. But if that shot comes off the stick properly he makes that save and, and you get there and go oh you can't fault him technically he didn't do sort of anything wrong there um the first goal martin got turned inside out before it got down to flurry and your boy jack johnson yeah. scored um yeah i thought he'd, that was just funny when he scored <laughs> the first goal he's slightly overcommitted, but, but that's the way flurry flurry keeps he's aggressive and it was technically a one-on-one -on -one situation, so I understand why that was okay. You don't need him to be brilliant. Um, he made key saves when he needed to to make sure it, it, it stayed 3-3 uh, and to make sure it stayed 3-1 in reality. Um, and in, in the end, the guy that's considered the, the better goalie, Sutter's got to stop. So you get there and go, oh, well, Even, even the third one through his wickets. And, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, that's I. That's tough because it went through another set of legs as well. So you sit there and tough on goalies. We know they should stop a lot of pucks, but you know I've never played the position, so I wouldn't know what it's like trying to see these pucks through all these bodies. So it's hard. Well, last year Fleury started the playoffs with a shutout, and obviously we all know what happened after that. He imploded. It was very bad. But I do like that he he got scored on three times very early on in his first playoff game. He played a regular season where he probably knew no matter what he did, nobody gave a damn how good he was in the regular season. All it is is about the playoffs. And he had three goals in on him before the game was half over with. And he didn't crumble. He didn't let he didn't let it get to him. He stayed the course. And for the last 39 minutes and seconds, he did not allow a goal. So in some regards, I like that he gave up three goals, stayed strong, got them the win. Then the shutout last year where the Penguins dominated the Islanders and he was never challenged. 
do you credit Biles with the sticking with him, or do you take because it's that cold they would never switch over anyway? If Vokun was there, would they uh, have made the switch early, and that would have been the end of it? Well, I'm going to be completely honest. Before I knew that Vokun had his blood clot, I wanted the Penguins to go into the season with Vokun as the number one guy, and I don't makes perfect sense. And as I don't well, think yeah. I would be wrong to think that. But when the blood clot mm-hmm. thing happens, you can't plan for something like that. Um, they were up against the cap. It's not like they could have made a move for a better backup goalie. You just got to fly with Zatkoff. Zatkoff had a very nice year. But the Penguins are going to live and die with Flurry. They made that choice when they didn't move on from him. So, so far, so good. He, he played well. I, I think he's played well for most of the year, and I think he played well in game one. It's only one game. But... Good signs to be had there, I, I, I think, at least. Well, he didn't lose the game for them. He didn't win the game for them. So as far as the Penguins are concerned, that's all they want. No, he's just got to be slightly average or above average. He just he can't do what he did against the Islanders. And, you know, I personally. Um, to flip it over the other way, that's a game that... that Blue Jackets should have won. Up 3-1. You know, Bobrovsky, I know he's come, come back from injury late in the year, but he should have won. That they should be they should be thinking this and we can go forward from here. You know, that's, that's good enough. The franchise still has a playoff game. Correct. At least they have a playoff lead now. <laughs> I don't believe oh, they yeah, were led against Detroit. I could be wrong on that, but um, I don't think they did. So at least they have that. But yeah, I do still think it's a very lost time because, like I said before, I don't think the Penguins are going to come out with their sticks gripped tight in the first period tomorrow. I think they got their feet settled in, confident in their abilities. And, you know, they'll probably start to act more like a number two seed. I still say the Penguins should trade James Neal at the end of the year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He provides absolutely nothing apart from that blistering wrist shot. He can't stay on his skates when he's, he's physically challenged, trying to get the puck in the corners. And if he doesn't have Gino out there, you've lost. I just I I like what he brings in the context of he's a trigger man and he can he can you know really launch that puck. But he just he's lazy on the back check. We've seen what he can do when he gets frustrated in regards to suspensions and things along those lines. It's just, yeah, I, he frustrates me. I hear that. Um, it's never easy to move a 40-goal guy, but um, I do think if the Penguins flame out, he'll be the first guy that they, they look to move because... No, he'll be the second guy they look to move because Fleury will go. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on if he's... You know, if he's playing great and they flame out for different reasons, he'll probably be okay. But you're probably right. The flame out and flurry probably go hand in hand at this point. Okay, so the number two guy I I do think would be James Neal. You're not you're not moving Crosby. You're not moving Malkin. You're not moving Kunitz, who's older anyways. And even if you thought you were going to move Latang, the stroke thing is a real part of his potential trade value um so i don't yeah it limits the return i don't believe he'll be moved either so yeah i 
if there is a guy, he's probably the guy. But you know, let's let them flame out first. They may they may have a good run here now that they're starting yeah, to get healthy. Even even if they don't flame out, I I would still trade him. <laughs> and I know that's um, you're getting tough on him. Yeah, he just he's yeah he, I've, I've, he's just done me in just with the stuff that he does and the stuff that he doesn't do and he he's good enough he's good enough to back check and he just doesn't get deep enough in the zone at times and then you, you see him slash guys on stuff and you go why are you doing that they're gonna call that at a crucial time of the game and you're gonna burn the team's credit it's, and to most of the pens credit last game one i thought they all did a very nice job with the exception of chris Latang. Because the true. Blue Jackets That's true. certainly have the blueprint that the Flyers gave everybody for the Penguins. And Crosby set the tone by not retaliating with the Dubinsky stuff. The team followed. And James Neal was a part of that. He, Him, Malkin, and Jokinen, who all three of them have shown the tendencies of getting off the hinges when things get a little physical um I, I didn't see that from any of those three and in, in, in at least game one so i'll give credit where it's due they were very disciplined correct and and if they can continue to maybe they've learned some lessons from years past then more power to them and they'll they'll probably be a part of the future for for the penguins and ray Shero. so does the does the fact that all of the Dubinsky stuff has got media attention in regards to the stuff that he's done. Does that even play into game two in regards to the um, Yes and no. Not because of the media coverage, but if Dan Biles, my channels, is inner basketball coach, um, I would be making them aware, hey, our guy got kind of got jabbed in the, in the private areas off a of face-off. You just plant that seed so that maybe subconsciously area that maybe wasn't looking before and says, oh, wow, look at that, puts his arm up, um, and then he got a power play. So it, it's gamesmanship. It'll be on Bilesma yeah. to to gauge in some of that gamesmanship. Another coach that I think is pretty great at it, Mike Babcock's always done it. And his team yes, is one of the most very, clever very good. interference, non-interference kind of, you know. The Red Wings are so good at that non-penalty interference so good with how Babcock you know has that gamesmanship to get calls go their way that that's all part of the game and more power to the Red Wings for being able to do it Penguins Blue Jackets game was the consistent call on that about um, it's going to benefit the ball that interference the whole way no through the they have some high end forwards that'll take advantage of that they'll get more time and space and if they don't get the time and space, they'll get a power play out of it. So if that standard is upheld, I think long in the long term, it'll work out great for a team like Pittsburgh, who's a high-skilled, top-heavy kind of team. If it doesn't get called a lot, then a team like Detroit or Boston, whoever wins that series, is going to benefit greatly because both teams are just so good at that nonchalant interference stuff. Oh, I didn't say him there. I wasn't really any so is there uh anything else playoff related that uh no i think we've i think we've got it covered nice well, what do you say we wrap this up and uh we're gonna go watch some playoff hockey tonight now 
I think so. That would be a good idea. All right. <laughs> well, you can find me on Twitter at Gunner Stahl. You can find Cameron Walsh on Twitter at Walshy66. And you can find Hockey Hurts on Twitter at Hockey underscore Hurts. So that'll do it for this week. Hope you enjoy the uh, awesome week ahead for the Stanley Cup playoffs. And until then, we shall see you next time. Thanks for listening. Catch you guys.